Good morning, Fernando, alcoholic. Let's open the meeting with a moment of silence followed by the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change those things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Alcoholic Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other that they may solve their common problem and help others to recover from alcoholism. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. Amen. Okay, I'm going to read a couple of stories. The first story is about uh, the caring in AA, how AA works. Um, there was a, a lady that came into one of the uh, meetings, and uh, you couldn't tell that she ever drank before. Uh, this person had been a corporate giant and, and was rising to the top of success, and the image drove her to consuming at least one liter of alcohol a day as a means of escape. Before long, with the high-octane demands for her career, became constant struggle, coupled with self-imposed pressures to keep the veneer of success intact. She struggled, pushed her deep. Her struggle pushed her deep into depression. One thing led to another, and soon, besides being addicted to alcohol, uh, she became dependent on cocktails of strong antidepressant tranquilizers, beta blockers, and sleeping pills. She shared that she tried everything to beat the bottle. She made appointments with psychiatrists, psychologists, even faithful, faithfully attended support groups for alcoholics. Through these endless appointments and meetings, she experienced what she called a few bouts of recovery, but they only lasted several days at best. One day she was going to be on a holiday trip with the family. This filled her with more anxiety because she didn't know how she was going to get a secret alcohol fix. While traveling with the family, she had tried over and over again to quit drinking and was all too familiar with how the withdrawal symptoms had defeated her in every way. Her hands would tremble and shake so vigorously that she couldn't even hold a spoon to feed herself. She would feel faint and break out in cold sweats and would constantly throw up and not be able to keep any food down. All these symptoms would disappear with a drink or two. So she would sneak off to buy alcohol when she was supposed to be at the gym and guzzle hard liquor in secret when the family was at work. To the rest of the world, Kate appeared to have it all together. But she knew she knew that she was trapped in the prison of alcoholism and there was no way out of this vicious cycle of defeat. So she repeatedly tried to overcome her addictions without success. Kate was on the verge of giving up, but God had other plans. He led her to one one of the meetings who taught her to immense herself in the reading material and keep praying in the meetings. She kept listening, and and she saw the care of God, and it started to uproot her wrong ideas. Her hurts from childhood. Uh, she when uh, and something happened. Uh, something spiritual happened. With her honesty of opening up that I don't know it all, can't do it my way. Something happened with the surrender. To the ends of a means, a new life started. 
uh, power came in. Power to say no, power to take that vacation, and strength to to, uh, to say no to the addictions, to the ideas of drinking again. Even though the cravings do come back, and the ideas, she she would run to a meeting and remember uh, how to access that power. Usually by seeing the caring faces in AA, imagining she's there, uh, doing a serenity prayer, holding hands with another drunk. And what happens? Power of God, the joy of God takes place and overpowers the result to drink. And Ephesians 5.18 says, And do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So, thank God for there is help. And we don't have to live like that. I guess that's the message of this article. Uh, you don't have to live that. I read that article from The Power of Right Believing from Joseph Prince's book. Amen. Take care. Good luck. Okay. Jamie, I'm alcoholic. Jamie? I'm going to read chapter one, Bill's story, page one. Chapter one, Bill's story. War forever ran high in the New England town to which we knew. Young officers from Plattsburgh were assigned, and we were flattered when the first citizens took us under their, un, into their homes, making us feel heroic. Here was love, applause, war, moments sublime, with intervals hilarious. I was part of life at last, and in the midst of the excitement, I discovered liquor. I forgot the wrong warnings and the prejudice of my people concerning drink. In time, we sailed for over there. I was very lonely and again turned to alcohol. We landed in England. I visited Winchester Cathedral. Much moved, I w wandered outside. My attention was caught by doggerel of an old tombstone. Here lies a Hampshire grenadier. He caught his death drinking cold beer. A good soldier is near forgot whether he died by mustic or by pot. O ominous warning, which I failed to heed, 22 and a veteran of foreign wars, I went home at last. I fancied myself a leader, for had not the men of my battery given me a special token of appreciation. My talent for leadership, I imagine, would place me at the head of a vast enterprise which I could manage with the utmost assurance. I took a, I took a night law course and obtained employment as an investigator for a sorority company. The drive for success was on. I proved to the world I was important. My work took me about Wall Street and little by little I became interested in the market. Many people lost money, but some became very rich. Why not I? I studied economics and business as well as law. Potential alcoholic that I was, I nearly failed my law course. At one of the finals, I was too drunk to think or write. Though my drinking was not yet continuous, it disturbed my wife. We had long talks when I would steal, steal her forebodings by telling her that men of genius conceive their best projects when drunk, that the most majestic constructions of philosophic 
thought were so derived. By the time I had completed the course, I knew law was not for me. The inviting maelstrom of Wall Street had me in its grips. Business of financial leaders were my heroes. Out of this alloy of drink and speculation, I commenced to forge the weapon that one day would turn in its flight like a boomerang and all cut me in, and all but cut me to ribbons. Living modestly, my wife and I saved a thousand dollars. It went into certain securities, then cheap and rather unpopular. I rightly imagined that they would someday have a great rise. I failed to persuade my broker friends to send me out looking over factories and managements, but my wife and I had decided to go away. I had developed a theory that most people lost money in stocks through ignorance of markets. I discovered many more reasons later on. We gave up our position and off we roared on a motorcycle, the sidecar stuffed with tent, blankets, and change of clothes, and three huge volumes of a financial reference service. Our, fr our friends thought a lunacy commission should be appointed. Perhaps they were right. I had had some success and speculation, so we had a little money, but we once worked on a farm for a month to avoid drawing on our small capital. That was the last honest manual labor on my part for many a day. We covered the whole eastern United States, United States in a year. At the end of it, my reports to Wall Street procured me a position there and the use of a large expense account. The exercise of an option brought in more money, leaving us with a profit of several thousand dollars for that year. For the next few years, fortune threw money and applause my way. I had arrived. My judgment and ideas were followed by many to the tune of paper millions. The great boom of the late 20s was seething and swelling. Drink was taking an important and exhilarating part of my life. There was a loud talk in the jazz place, places uptown. Everyone spent in thousands and chattered in millions. Scoffers would scoff, scoffers would scoff, and be damned. I made a, a host of fair weather friends. My drinking assumed more serious proportions, continuing all day and almost every night. The remonstrances of my friends terminated in a row, and I became a lone wolf. There were many unhappy scenes in our sumptuous apartment. There had been no real infidelity or loyal to my wife. Helped me at times by extreme drunkenness kept me out of those scrapes. In 1929, I contacted Gulf Fever. We went at once to the country. We went at once to the country. My wife to applaud while I started out to overtake Walter Hagen. Liquor caught up me with me much faster than I came up behind Walter. I began to be jittery in the morning. Golf permitted drinking every day and every night. It was fun to crumb around the exclusive. Exclusive, exclusive course which had inspired such awe in me as a lad. I acquired an impeccable coat of tan one seized upon the well-to-do. The local banker watched me whirl fat checks in and out of his till with amused skepticism. Abruptly, in October 1929, hell broke loose on the New York Stock Exchange. 
After one of those days of inferno, I wobbled from a hotel bar to a brokerage office. It was 8 o'clock, five hours after the market closed. The ticker still clattered. I was staring at an inch of tape which bore the inscription XYZ-32. It had been 52 that morning. I was finished and so were many friends. The papers reported men jumping to death from the towers of high finance. That disgusted me. I would not jump. I went back to the bar. My friends had dropped several million since 10 o'clock. So what? Tomorrow was another day. As I drank, the old fierce determination to win came back. Next morning, I telephoned a friend in Montreal. He had plenty of money left and thought I had better go to Canada. By the following spring, we were living in a custom style, in our custom style. I felt like Napoleon returning from Elba. No St. Helena for me. But drinking caught up with me again and my generous friend had to let me go. This time, we stayed broke. We went to live with my, my wife's parents. I found a job, then lost it as a result of a brawl with a taxi driver. Mercifully, no one could guess that I was to have no real employ employment for five years or hardly draw a sober breath. My wife began to work in a department store, coming home and exhausted to find me drunk. I had become unwelcome. I, be I became an unwelcome hanger-on at brokerage places. Liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. Bathtub gin, two bottles a day, and often three, got to be a routine. Sometimes a small deal would net a few hundred dollars, and I would pay my bills at the bars and delicatessens. This went on endlessly, and I began to waken very early in the morning, shaking violently. A tumbler full of gin, followed by a half dozen bottles of beer, would be required if I were to eat any breakfast. Nevertheless, I still thought I could control the situation, and there were periods of sobriety which renewed my wife's hope. Gradually, things got worse. The house was taken over by a mortgage holder. My mother-in-law died. My wife and father-in-law became ill. Then I got a promising business opportunity. Stocks were at the low point of 1932, and I had somehow formed a group to buy. I was to share generously in the profits. Then I went on a prestigious bender, and that chance vanished. I woke up. This had to be stopped. I saw I could not take as much as one drink. I was through forever. Before then, I had written lots of sweet promises, but my wife happily observed that this time I meant business, and so I did. Shortly after I came home drunk, there had been no fight. Where had been my high resolve? I simply didn't know. I hadn't even come to mind. It hadn't even come to mind. Somehow, someone had pushed a drink my way and I had taken it. I was, was I crazy? I began to wonder, for such an appalling lack of perspective seemed near being just that. Renewing my resolve, I tried again. Some time passed and confidence began to replace by cocksureness. I could laugh at the gin mills. Now I had what it takes. One day I walked into a cafe to into a cafe to telephone. In no time I was beating on the bar asking myself how it happened. As the whiskey rose to my head, I told myself I would manage better time better next time. 
but I might as well get drunk. I, I might as well get good and drunk then. And I did. The remorse, horror, and hopelessness of the next morning are unforgettable. The courage to do battle was not there. My brain raced uncontrollably, and there was a terrible sense of impending calamity. I hardly dared cross the street least, lest I collapse and be run over down by an early morning truck, for it was scarcely daylight. An all-night place supplied me with a dozen glasses of ale. My writhing nerves were still were stilled at last. A morning paper told me the market had gone to hell again. Well, so had I. The market would recover, but I wouldn't. That was a hard thought. Should I kill myself? No, not now. Then a mental fog settled down. Gin would fix that. So two bottles and oblivion. Welcome to today's podcast. We're going to be talking about step 10 and reading from a few books. And then I'll be reading from the 12 and 12 about step 10 and some of my own personal views on step 10. Let's go ahead and open this session with a moment of silence followed by the serenity prayer, please. God. Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen. This is from the book Hope for Today. Step 10. Continue to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitting it. Reminds me that I have the right to be human. Continue to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, Promptly admitting it reminds me that I have the right to be human. My sponsor tells me that God made me a perfect human being, not to be a perfect God. I certainly do engage regular in wide array of human behaviors, making mistakes, harming others, and hurting myself. No matter how long I am in recovery, I never progress beyond being human. However, accepting my human condition doesn't mean I have to live with the uncomfortable feelings such as guilt and shame, which often go along with making human mistakes. Step 10 invites me to regularly keep a finger on my spiritual pulse so I can cooperate with God in my spiritual growth and healing. It says that if I do or say something wrong, I can stop turn around and do something different now. Step 10 invites me to grow up, to be responsible, and to make amends, all for my own benefit. I take step 10 because I want to be the best me I can be. Thought for the day. When I continue to take personal inventory and amend my wrongs, I can live my life peacefully with God's other children. This step continues the process which began with step four, being aware of the things we do and taking corrective measures without delay. Amen. And that quote, this step continues the process which began with step four, being aware of the things we do and taking corrective measures without delay is taken from the Alateen 12 and 12, page 20. Incredible, huh? 
And now we're going to shift gears. We have an article here from the grapevine. And October 2020, it's, it's Tradition 10. Oh, I thought it was Step 10. This is Tradition 10. Huh. Well, like they say, there's no mistakes in AA. And I promptly admit it. I made a mistake. Now, wait a minute. Here it is. I didn't make a mistake. Step 10. Continue to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitting it. <laughs> as soon as I, I admitted it, it turned different. All right, spot check on I-94. Today's story comes to us from a AA member from St. Peter, Montana, Andy A. Thank you, Andy, for sending this story and doing all the hard work of writing it. Here we go. We were due at a birthday party in just a few minutes. We were almost always late to parties, but we had to be early for this one because we were hosting. I hadn't looked at my GPS direction to the party venue until the car ride was already underway. Turn right when you exit the interstate, it announced, or so I thought. Look for street numbers, I said to the carload of fourth great girls and my son Silas, who is eight, and on the awesome spectrum. He was experiencing the accumulated auditory overstimulation of riding with a carload of fourth grade girls. It took a half a mile or more to see a street number, 1360. We were looking for 524. How long will we get there? One of the girls shouted in her outside voice. This is boring. It's probably about a mile and a half away, I replied. So like 20 minutes, she asked. Like three minutes, I said, and all the other kids laughed. I felt slightly superior to the entire world for a half second until I noticed another street number, 1548, and another 1560. The numbers were increasing when they should have been decreasing. I felt instant frustration, anger, inadequacy, fear. My heart rate was climbing. Under my breath, I muttered, we're going the wrong way, Expletive, expletive way. Did you just say the F word? My daughter Sarah asked, shocked and surprised. Well, I muttered, I thought about lying. A snap reaction, oh Andy, I used to do, but I confessed and said, no one was supposed to hear that, I said. My dad just said the F word in a car full of little kids. Sarah announced at a top volume, it's my 10th birthday. All my best friends are here, and my dad just said the F word. This is the best day ever. I said the F word in class one time, announced the bored girl. I thought only once, but I couldn't rejoice in superiority this time because I was too busy visualizing ways that the party would be ruined now that we were suddenly running late. It didn't help that Silas was starting to melt down from the excess stimulation and there was nothing I could do right then and then to help him. As though we weren't enough. I was extremely disappointed with myself that my daughter had heard me curse. But right then I got the buzz of a phone notification. I pulled over. It was a text from my brother. I'm here, it said. Where are you? I went the wrong way on 94, I text back. Oh, 
My, came a text back. Then another, are you okay? Followed by, like wrong turn or wrong way. Wrong turn, I text back, and somehow at the U-turn, I was able to stop and experience some perspective, some gratitude, some acceptance, a nice out-of-self inventory of what my current situation really was. I realized that I was in the car with my daughter and son on a very special day. She had her best friends with her. Most friends would be waiting at the party venue. My wife, Tiffany, would arrive at the venue before I would to check in, to set up, to greet arriving guests. She had done a ton of work already to pull this party off. We would still make it to the party, but it's scheduled start time. We just wouldn't be early like we planned. Silas would have relief from the noise in just a few minutes, and overall, he's becoming more and more high-functioning at parent-teacher conferences the previous week. A small group of educators told me Silas was going doing so well in school that they were going to reevaluate him to see if they needed special services at all. My daughter was shocked enough by hearing me curse under my breath that it somehow made her day. She didn't remember that old Andy, the drinking Andy, used to curse at top volume all the time. I'm sober now and sober is my normal. Old Andy mostly stays home. And most importantly, this upsetting detour only resulted in a simple wrong turn, not something much worse. I wasn't driving this carload of my kids and another people's kids directly into oncoming traffic. I could be very, very grateful for that. Yesterday is history. Tomorrow is a mystery. All we have is today. After running that spot check inventory today and decided how to proceed, I determined that Sarah was correct. Today was the best day ever because we both decided to make it so and oriented our outlooks accordingly. What I learned in AA is that all of us every day have the power to make today the best or worst day ever. And sitting here at the end of it, yes, today was long, I say it was challenging. It had some down moments. I could have done more and I could have done better. But all things tallied while comparing it to my own history and letting tomorrow's mysteries fade into the shadow where it belongs. Today was the best day. Tomorrow will be even better. The things we do affect others. Picking up her daughter at the party, one parent pulled Tiffany aside and thanked her for inviting her child. They had just moved here. The girl was new in school and a little depressed, discouraged. She didn't feel she was had any friends. When she got the party invitation from Sarah, she got some hope and some really healthy pride. And she showed up and had a great time. And we all had a better time because she was there. Now that I'm sober, life is a two-way street. You make a wrong turn, all you have to do is turn around and head in the direction of your best day by Andy A. St. Peter, Montana. Thank you very much, Andy. That's awesome. Stop and choose to have the best day of your life. Say, I thank you, God, for what's going on. I choose joy with you. I choose happiness with you. And that's about the only thing that works for me. I choose God in the midst of chaos.
Now, the reading of step 10 from the 12 and 12. Listen up, please. Perk your ears up like this is the first time you ever heard it. Continue to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admit it. I was at a meeting today, and we read this when we were wrong, promptly admitting it, and that jumped out of the pages. I was reading chapter 5. Here in Southern California, in the West Coast, we try and read uh, a portion of chapter 5. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. I do it out of memory. And I'm looking at the trees because we have meetings outside in the oak trees. We had a guy there with 47 years, my sponsor. We had a, one of his sponsees with 34 years. Uh, we have another guy with 17 years. And then myself with 27 years. And then the other guys with five. And then we had a guy that drank a couple of days ago. So it was a big, uh, it was interesting meeting. And the point I'm making is I was reading it the uh, when we were wrong, promptly admitting it and saying, hey, I messed up. Before it was hide, 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 and cover, cover up, and don't know how to deal with it. And and then it becomes um, a cut up, cut up feeling problems that go deep in the heart. So the best way to undo it is say thank you God for the way I'm feeling okay and that's our antidote that's our medicine that there's humor in it there's peace there's joy and we go to God first and admit our wrong thank you God I thought that thank you God I, I, I put action to that thank you God I did that thank you God for the way I'm feeling for my emotional sobriety and thank you God for the way my emotional my emotions are acting up. You keep thanking God and you, we will open up a reservoir, a channel of water that will fill our reservoir and we will never grow dry. We will always have love for ourselves and forgiveness for ourselves and forgiveness for others. We're doing life and life with abundantly. Life that works. I thank you, God, for my feelings just the way they are. Copy. Copy. All right. As we work first steps, as we work the first nine steps, we prepare ourselves for the adventure of a new life. But when we approach step 10, we commence to put our AA way of living to practical use day by day in fair weather or fall. Then comes the acid test. Can we stay sober, keep in emotional balance, and live to good purpose under all conditions? A continuous look at our assets and liabilities and a real desire to learn and grow by this means are necessities for us. We alcoholics have learned this the hard way. More experienced people, of course, in all times, places have practiced unsparing self-serving and criticism. For the wise has always known that no one can make much of his life until self-searching becomes a regular habit, until he is able to admit and accept what he finds 
and until he patiently and persistently tries to correct what is wrong. When a drunk has a terrible hangover because he drunk heavily yesterday, he cannot live well today. But there is another kind of hangover which we all experience, whether we are drinking or not. That is the emotional hangover, the direct result of yesterday and sometimes today's excesses of negative emotion like anger, fear, jealousy, and the like. If we would live serenely today and tomorrow, we certainly need to eliminate these hangovers. This doesn't mean we need to wander morbidly around in the past. It requires an admission and correction of errors now. Our inventory enables us to settle with the past. When this is done, we are really able to leave it behind us. When our inventory is, is carefully taken and we have made peace with ourselves, and conviction follows that tomorrow challenges can be met as they come. Although all inventories are alike in principle, the time factor does distinguish one from another. There's the spot check inventory taken at any time of the day. Whenever we find ourselves getting tangled up, there's the one we take at the day's end when we review the happenings of the hour just past. Here we cast up a balance sheet, crediting ourselves with things well done. I said crediting ourselves with things well done and chalking up debits were due. Then there's are those occasions when alone or in company of our sponsor or spiritual advisor, we make a careful review of our progress since that last time. Many AAs go in for annual or semi-annual house cleanings. Many of us also like the experience of an occasional retreat from the outside world where we can quiet down for an undisturbed day or so of self-overhaul and medication. Aren't there practices joy killers as well as time consumers? Must AA spend most of their walking hours dreading rehashing their sins of omission and commission? Well, hardly. The emphasis on inventory is heavy only because a great many of us have never really acquired the habit of accurate self-appraisal. Once this healthy practice has become grooved, it will be so interesting and profitable that the time it takes won't be missed. For these minutes and sometimes hours spent in self-examination are bound to make all the other hours of our day better and happier. And at length, our inventory becomes a regular part of everyday living rather than something unusual or set apart. Before we ask what a spot check inventory is, let's look at the kind of setting in which such an inventory can do its work. It is a spiritual axiom that every time we are disturbed, no matter what the cause, there is something wrong with us. If somebody hurts us, we are on the sore. If we are in the wrong also. But are there no exceptions to this rule? What about justifiable anger? If someone cheats us, aren't we entitled to be mad? Can we properly can we be properly angry with self-righteous folks? For for us of AA, there are dangerous exceptions. We have found that justified anger ought to be left to those better qualified to handle it. 
Few people have been more victimized by resentments than have we alcoholics. It matters little whether little whether our resentments were justified or not. A burst of temper could spoil a day, and a well-nursed grudge could make us miserably ineffective. Nor were we ever skillful in separating justified from unjustified anger. As we saw it, our wrath was always justified. Anger, that occasional luxury of more balanced people, could keep us on an emotional jag indefinitely. These emotions, dry benders, often lead straight to the bottle. Other kinds of disturbances, jealousy, envy, self-pity, or hurt pride did the same thing. A spot check inventory takes, taken in the midst of such disturbances can be a very great help in quieting stormy emotions. Today, spot check its chief application to situations which arrive in each day's march. The consideration of long-standing difficulties had better be postponed when possible. No time deliberately set aside for that purpose. The quick inventory is aimed at our daily ups and downs, especially those where people or new events throw us off balance and tempt us to make mistakes. In all these situations, we need self-restraint, honest analysis of what is involved, a willingness to admit when the fault is ours, and an equal willingness to forgive when the fault is elsewhere. We need not to be discouraged when we fall into the error of our old ways, for these disciplines are not easy. We shall look for progress, not for perfection. Our first objective will be the development of self-restraint. This carries a top priority rating. When we speak or act hastily or rashly, the ability to be firm-minded and and tolerates evaporates on the spot. One kind tirade, one unkind tirade, or one willful snap judgment can ruin our relationship with another person for a whole day or maybe for a whole year. Nothing pays off like the restraint of tongue and pen. We must avoid quick temper criticism and furious power driven argument. The sample goes. The saying goes for sulking or silent scorn. These are emotional booby traps, baited with pride and vengefulness. Our first job is to do sidestep the straps. When we are tempted by the bait, we should train ourselves to step back and think, for we can neither think nor act to good purpose until the habit of self-restraint has become automatic. Disagreeable or unexpected problems are not only the ones that call for self-control. We must be quite as careful when we begin to achieve some measure of importance or material success. For no people have ever loved personal triumphs more than we alcoholics. We drank of success of a wine which could never fail to make us feel elated. When temporary good fortune came our way, we indulged ourselves in fantasies of still greater victories over people and circumstances. Thus, blinded by prideful self-confidence, we were apt to play the big shot. Of course, people turned away from us 
bored, or hurt. Now that we're in AA and sober and winning back the esteem of our friends and business associates, we find that we still need to exercise special vigilance as an insurance against big shotism. We can often check ourselves by remembering that we are today sober only by the grace of God and that any success we may be having is far more his success than ours. Finally, we begin to see that all people, including ourselves, are to some extent emotionally ill as well as frequently wrong. And then we approach true tolerance and see what real love for our fellow actually means. It will become more and more evident as we go forward that it is pointless to become angry or to get hurt by people who, like us, are suffering from the pains of growing up. Such a radical change in our outlook will take time, maybe a lot of time. Not many people can truthfully assert that they love everybody. Most of us must admit that we have love, but a few, that we have been quite indifferent to the many so long as none of them gave us trouble. And as far as for the remainder, well, we have really disliked or hated them. Although these attitudes are common enough, we AAs find we need something much better in order to keep our balance. We can't stand it if we hate deeply. The idea that we can be possessively loving of a few can ignore the many and can continue to to fear or hate anybody has to be abandoned. It is only a little at a time, if only. We can stop trying to make unreasonable demands upon those we love. We can show kindness where we have shown none. With those we dislike, we can begin to practice justice and courtesy, perhaps being out of our way to understand and help them. Perhaps going out of our way to help them. Whenever we fail any of these people, we can promptly admit it to ourselves always and to them also when the admission would be careful. Courtesy, kindness, justice, and love are the keynotes by which we may come into harmony with practical anybody. When in doubt, we can always pause saying, not my will, but thine would be done. And we can often ask ourselves, am I doing to others as I would have them do to me today? When evening comes, Perhaps just before going to sleep, many of us draw up a balance sheet for the day. This is a good place to remember that inventory taking is not always done in red ink. It's a poor day indeed when we haven't done something right. As a matter of fact, we the walking hours are usually well filled with things that are constructive. Good intentions, good thoughts, and good acts are there for us to see. Even when we have tried hard and failed, we may chalk that up. As one of the greatest credits of all, under these conditions, the pains of failure are converted into assets. Out of them, we receive the stimulation. We need to go forward. Someone who knew what he was talking about once remarked that pain was the touchstone of all spiritual progress. How heartily we AAs can agree with him. 
For we know that the pains of drinking had to come before sobriety and emotional turmoil before serenity. As we glance down the debit side of the day's ledger, we should carefully examine our motives in each thought or act that appears to be wrong. In most cases, our motives won't be hard to see and understand. When prideful, angry, jealousy, anxious, or fearful, we acted accordingly, and that was that. Here, we need only recognize that we did act or think badly. Try to visualize how we might have done better and resolve with God's help to carry these lessons over into tomorrow, making, of course, any amends still neglected. But in other instances, only the closest scrutiny will reveal what our true motives are or were. There are cases where our ancient enemy realization has stepped in and has justified conduct which was really wrong. The temptation here is to imagine that we have had good motives and reasons when we really don't. We constructively criticize someone who needs it. When our real movie was to win, real motive was to win a useless argument, or the person concerned not being present, we thought we were helping others to understand him. When in actuality, our true motive was to feel superior by pulling him down. We sometimes hurt those we love because they need to be taught a lesson. When we really want to punish them, When we really want to punish, we were depressed and complaining. We felt bad when, in fact, we were mainly asking for sympathy and attention. This whole... We were depressed and complaining. We felt bad when, in fact, we were mainly asking for sympathy and attention. This odd trait of mind and emotion, this perverse wish to hide a bad motive underneath a good one, permeates human affairs from top to bottom. This subtle and elusive kind of self-righteousness can underlie the smallest act or thought. Learning daily to spot, admit, and correct these flaws in the essence of character building and good living and honest regret for harms done, a genuine gratitude for blessings received, and a willingness to try for better things tomorrow will be the permanent asset of the permanent asset we shall seek. Having so consider our day, not omitting to take due notice of things well done, and having searched our hearts for neither fear nor favor. We can truly thank God for the blessings we have received and sleep in good conscience. Amen. The word thank you for listening to today's podcast of the step 10.